listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast, I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew, here this week with a special interview with Dr. Sarah McAnulty, uh, who is a squid biologist, science communicator, the executive director of Skype a Scientist, which is a really cool program we're going to talk about a little bit here, and also an assistant research professor at the University of Connecticut uh, Department of Molecular and Cell Biology. Um, Sarah, how are you doing today? Doing awesome. Thanks for having me. No problem. We are so excited. excited. So, so um, we wanted we wanted to start off by just kind of, I guess, giving, you know, just talking about our love of squid. You know, that's really how this all came about, that we wanted to have you on the show. So yeah. uh, so we when when Marie and I first started this show. So initially I did the show on my own and it was. Like, you know, it was fun to do and everything else, but it was like I wrote a script and I talked about stuff and it was kind of boring. And I asked Marie to come on and she was like, yeah, I'll I'll come on the show if we do an episode about giant squids. Um, <laughs> and now that was three like, years later. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, we, and so, we actually did one. We did one. It was like, we did. You know, we did one. Yeah. Pretty. Yeah, it was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. But then uh, then we, we saw you on Twitter and you are an actual expert on squid biology. So why don't you tell listeners a little bit about, um, I guess, how you got started in that field and what you do now or kind of what about squid biology was so interesting to you? What did you do research on? Yeah, sure. So um, I first got interested in squid when I was a little kid, actually. I know it's kind of weird to have a little girl that loves squid, but I uh, took a video out of the library um, when I was a kid and um, it introduced cuttlefish. And so cuttlefish are a type of cephalopod um, that kind of look like a rugby ball with a bed skirt around the outside and then a little squid face up at the front. And so they are extremely good at changing color. And some of them do this thing called passing cloud, which is basically like they, they're they changing color to almost look like a hypnotist wheel. So they have this black banding sort of that moves along their body and is incredibly confusing to look at and really cool looking. And so I saw that as a kid and I had previously been like super into dinosaurs. And then I saw cuttlefish and that was pretty much the end of it because it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And so from there, uh, I was pretty much hell bent on studying cephalopods as an adult. And so uh, I worked with cuttlefish in undergrad at the Marine Biological Lab in Woods Hole, MBL. And um, then I got my PhD working with bobtail squid. And so bobtail squid aren't like the squid that you might eat in like calamari. They're not really torpedo shaped. Um, they don't look like the giant squid. They look like a little dumpling uh, with a face. So they're like about the size of a lime, maybe a little smaller, maybe like a key lime if you're familiar with those uh, tiny limes. And uh, they're like rainbow colored, but they're nocturnal. So you really uh, wouldn't see their color most of the time because uh, they're always in the dark. But what's really, really cool about bobtail squid is that they have this beneficial relationship with bioluminescent bacteria. And they keep that bioluminescent bacteria in this specialized little organ called a light organ. And the light organ is like the coolest evolutionary thing that's ever happened in my opinion. It kind of looks like a black and silver butterfly like inside of the squid. And so it has like two little pouches on either side um, that are full of these like 
crypt spaces. And so within that those pouches, they keep bioluminescent bacteria. And then as the squid is up swimming at night, uh, it's able to use the light from the bacteria and match the moonlight that comes down from above and kind of use the bacteria like a little flashlight to match that light and then blend in with the moonlight coming down, basically camouflaging themselves from predators swimming below. Um, and so like that in and of itself is so cool. But the reason that so many scientists are studying this squid is because they're basically like a simple model for understanding how bacteria and animals talk to each other. So you might think about um, bacteria that are important for our lives. We know that bacteria live all over our skin. They live in our gut and they keep us healthy and we pretty much need them to be a healthy human, digest things properly, have a normal immune system. They're really, really important. But if we wanted to study how animals and bacteria talk to each other in, say, like a mouse or a rabbit, it's pretty hard to do because a, a mouse or a rabbit would have like 100 to 1,000 species of bacteria living in their gut, but the squid just has one species of bacteria living in that organ. So instead of having to listen to like, a hundred different conversations happening all at the same time at a crowded bar, you're listening to just two people talking to each other in a quiet room. And so that's why the squid, aside from being just like inherently cool, is really, really helpful for scientists studying bacteria, animals, and how they interact with each other. Wow, that's- Oh my God, I, mean, I want a light organ. So we all. Yeah, it's so cool. Oh, and I like, want a light organ. So the, the, in, in terms of that, like, butterfly I was talking about, the black and the silver butterfly, the black is actually the ink sac of the squid. And so we think that the squid is basically using its ink sac as kind of like a shutter. And then the silver, which is kind of toward, um, like, the tips of the butterfly's wing, that's actually reflective tissue. It looks like a little mirror. And so using, like, muscular contraction and a lens that's inside of the light organ it's able to control like where the light goes and how much comes out. And it's just like, that's the coolest thing ever. Totally amazing. Yeah. That's, you know, it's funny. So when I, I did, um, so first off, yeah, definitely want a light organ. I am very obvious in the moonlight, um, which has always been a problem for me and predators. The, (laughs) um, when I, you know, so I did, when I was in school, I did uh, philosophy as a second major as an undergrad. And this reminds me of a really interesting case in philosophy of science about it, it's, it's called like the fly and the, uh, the fly and the frog kind of problem, right? Or it's described that way a lot of the time. And it points to this idea about like the philosophy of mind and the philosophy of cognition of like animal cognition versus human cognition. And so this idea is um, – in humans, we have thoughts like, you know, I will catch that to make food because I'm hungry or whatever. But in animals, they have these things that are just kind of like what uh, or if then um, thoughts. So in other words, like if a fly passes in front of me or if a black dot passes in front of me, I will shoot my tongue out to catch it. Right. If you're a frog. Um, but it doesn't differentiate between like the fly is a fly and a black dot on a screen. So if you put a frog in front of a black dot on a screen as it's moving around, It'll still try to catch that black dot. It never seems to kind of um, differentiate or learn that they're different in kind because um, it's just like sensory information. 
in the case yeah. of in this ca- in the case of cuttlefish, though, um, like the famous example, I guess, from philosophy is, you know, those experiments where you put a cuttlefish or or, you know, trying to figure out how a cuttlefish um, mimics its colors right to its surroundings. So, you know, you put it on top of a black and white checkerboard pattern and it'll do its best to do that. Um, the sense of like. Is it, you know, how are they thinking? How are they picking up that information? Is it their eyes? Is it their skin? Is it some mixture of the thing? It's so fascinating. Um, just their brains are crazy. And, oh, my God. It's just like, how do you pick it apart even at the beginning? I mean, it's squid are awesome. Cuttlefish are awesome. It's true. I mean, studying cephalopods is super fun, but also incredibly challenging because they diverge from us so, so long ago that a lot of the assumptions that we may make um, about how a vertebrate would operate because those are the animals that we know the most about um, are just totally wrong. And so sometimes uh, they just surprise us left and right. Like the way their brains are uh, structured and like the dispersion of the neurons across the body, like you have um, a group of neurons in octopus legs, um, like ganglion, which are like mini brains, basically. And then one central brain. It's just like, there's just a lot going on. And it is super, super cool. It's to me, it's like, I think the fact that they're so different than humans, and we don't know how to read them or how to react to them. Like, again, something that's Something that's a mammal, you know, has you can look at it and you can start to sort of identify or even anthropomorphize it, right? Like you can see, oh, it's a kitten. It's you know, it's happy, it's sleepy, whatever. And so it's sort of you you have some attachment to that. But there's something so alien about a squid, right? It's like yeah. especially when you get it on the big scale. I feel like when you start looking at like the giant squid or the colossus or something that is just it's to me, it's like it's it is it's a real life monster. You know, it, it exists. Yeah. And it's yeah. to me, that is so phenomenal. And it's also it's so different. It is so different than anything else that's out there that's existing out there. And to me, I, I think that that kind of describes some of the fascination or at least some of the fascination I have with it. But some of the like when you get into the appropriation of it with Lovecraft and horror and sort of this otherness and the alienness of it. I think that that is, that's just, there's nothing else out there that is, that is that different from us that we know about. You're right. Yeah. I think studying invertebrates in general is really fun for that reason, because at least with a cephalopod, we can see its eyes. We can make eye contact with it. We can relate to it in some way. But I kind of think of cephalopods as like the gateway drug for invertebrates because once <laughs> you connect with a cephalopod, like, yeah, it's, it's all downhill. Nothing makes sense. Yeah, no, exactly. Like you're like, okay, but you like you have a face. Like I get, I get what you're doing. I see that you're hunting. I see <laughs> that you're like, you know, doing your thing. But then you're like, okay, but like, what's a snail up to? Like, what's a scallop up to? Like, what are I don't know clams doing? Like, there's. Things that don't have as obvious faces are like the next things that you might think about. Yeah. And then you kind of need to remind yourself not to underestimate all of these other invertebrates that we're surrounded by. Yeah. What's the thing what's what's the thing from Harry Potter? Like, doesn't Ron say his his dad told him never trust a thing if you can't see where it keeps its brain? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Pretty much. I mean, it's like, I, I, but they're also like, from everything that I've, you know, I, I got into a whole book of like, you know, a whole, uh, uh, spree of just buying all of the books on, I could find on this stuff a while back. And just like the, the amount of intelligence that they display, or just like, like you were saying, just like watching a, a video of something changing color or an octopus escaping from a jar or just anything. And you're like, it clearly has, or you can start to feel like it clearly has some sort of superior intelligence to be able to problem solve, which is, which is just so insane to me. Like the most recent, the most recent video I saw with the, um, and somebody posted it on my, on Twitter too, about the giant squid in Northern North America, right? Where it's Mm -hmm. tracking, it tracks alongside the vessel um, or the submarine that's trying to film it. And you can see it reach out and try and identify like, hi, are you food? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. and you can see it. And it's all of a sudden it's like, and it's gone. And I'm just like, that's so amazing. It's so graceful and like stealth and it's ginormous. And it's like, that's, that's terrifying too. So I'm just gushing. Yeah. I love that I think so it's much. really fun to like look into the eyes and connect with something that's so different from you because like what is more different from us than a cephalopod that you can still like make eye contact with and know that it's thinking about you when you're thinking about it. That's you know so what crazy. I mean? Like a fly, <laughs> like what is a fly thinking about? I don't know. I, Very are suspicious. They about me or are they just yes. like in la la land in there? I really it's hard to connect with. Right. But, um, cephalopods, you know, so different, but there's still some kind of emotional connection there that you can make. So for listeners, I guess, I mean, so first off, I guess I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you some very simple questions, I guess, about kind of basic squid cephalopod stuff, just because I think, you know, people, I know listeners really like this topic. They really like, I think people just want to learn more about animals generally, if they can, you know what I mean? But it's hard to get, um, I don't know, it's hard to find, like, engaging content on this kind of stuff, I think, sometimes, Um, which is why I think the stuff that you do is so, so important and so cool. But so first off, I guess, let's just start with really basic stuff. So what what is an invertebrate? An invertebrate is an animal that doesn't have a backbone, basically. So all of your mollusks, insects, arachnids. And many, many more echinoderm, like all sorts of stuff, starfish, anything that's not, doesn't have a backbone. Got it. Okay. And so what is the kind of, I guess, from an evolutionary standpoint, um, how long ago do we think that divergence happened? I I know it's hard to like pinpoint and especially with- Oh, geez. I don't know this off the top of my head. I know that cephalopods, the first cephalopod arose 500 million years ago. And to give Mm. you some context, I think the oldest shark- was something around the ballpark of 425, but let me fact check that. And um, trees were also more recent than cephalopods. So, so cephalopods have been on Earth for longer than trees. Yeah, that's and so they've just yeah, been suck at they've trees. Just been, Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> they've just been comically successful in terms of their adaptations and being able to survive that long. I mean, it's yeah, that's that is crazy uh, to think they've about. Survived five mass extinctions. Wow, that's nuts. so cool. Pretty impressive. Oh my god, or caused impressive. five. You know, I, I yeah, <laughs> no? yeah, I just look at I look at my week. I just look at my week that I've got planned coming up and I'm like, I don't think I survived this. 
Like, forget oh. about a mass extinction. Oh, please. We're going to cause our next mass extinction. I know. <laughs> it's not, not going great. The squids um, are like, yeah, slow the roll. Big. Okay. What is the difference between a squid and an octopus? Okay. So there's a lot of evolutionary time between those two animals. But basically, um, it's, like, it's complicated because there's so many different ways to be a squid. Okay. That, you know, they're like, so there are many, many different types of squid. But broadly speaking, okay, we've got octopuses and they have eight arms. Okay. And that's it. And then we've got squid, which almost every single time have eight arms and two tentacles. There's, I think, one weirdo that lives in the deep sea that loses its tentacles in adulthood, but we don't need to get into the nitty gritty. Um, your arms are covered in suckers all the way down, and then tentacles are super stretchy and then have clubs at the end that have suction cups, and they often have like little circular rings of teeth that allow uh, the squid to grab onto whatever it's attacking. Squid have a couple different groups. You've got the the toothoid squid, and those are the kinds that like you'd find um, – you know, in your calamari, basically. You've got the myopsid squid, which, you know what? This is TMI, but there are, let me see how else I can explain. Okay, basically you've got squid that look like torpedoes, and then you have squid that look like uh, the dumpling type of squid. Okay. And those mm-hmm. are called, um, the generally speaking, the bobtail squid. Now, technically, bobtail squid aren't squid. They're their own thing. And then there's the cuttlefish, which are also their own thing. But cuttlefish, bobtails, and squid all fall into the cephalopods with 10 appendages category, which are very different from octopuses. Now, like internally, there are differences between octopuses and squid, but not all squid or cuttlefish have the organs that that octopuses don't have. So it's quite complicated. Like we tend to oversimplify uh, cephalopod uh, kind of family trees, but uh, the further in you go, the more complicated it gets. Got it. Okay. Yeah. It's so, I mean, it's so, so cool. all of that is just so, um, man, Marie, we did an episode on these things. We had do nothing. We didn't do anything. Basically it was just Chris <laughs> and I, telling our favorite squid story again and again, watching some YouTube videos that no one else could see. And we tried to describe them, I think, and just saying how cool it was. Yeah, it was very successful. Well, I guess. really cool behaviorally. Like the more we're learning about genetics, because we're starting to really rack up a bunch of uh, cephalopod genomes, the more we're, we're realizing like, oh boy, this is complicated. Uh-huh. <laughs> like their genomes are complicated. Their evolutionary history is complicated. Um, but that just gives us more to play with. Right, more more questions to answer as the time goes yeah. on. How what do, would you go ahead, Marie? How do they hunt? Because I know, so it's yeah, bag, like it depends on the species, but on the whole, um, mostly you have. Okay, let's talk about like the kinds of squid that you would have, like up swimming in the water column. Um, a bunch of animals, like from plankton on up, they go through this day night cycle where um, during the daytime they're pretty deep. And then at night, the, a bunch of the plankton start to f- swim up toward the top of the ocean. Um, and the squid will follow that cycle as well. Um, and then pretty much like once they see something that they want to eat, they angle their body toward 
that prey item. Um, so they might mm-hmm. just be like be bopping around, but then you'll see them like pivot and like focus in on the fish, the crab, whatever. Um, and then they put their arms and tentacles into like a little funnel. And then they start to like scoot their tentacles out toward like the uh, point of their mm-hmm. uh, arm cone and then shoot their tentacles out grab the prey from either side with each tentacle and then bring it to their mouth. And that's, this is when things go from weird to weirder because they have a beak. Mm-hmm. Um, but within that beak, they have a tongue that's called a radula. It's not really a tongue. It's a radula, but imagine a tongue if you don't know what a radula is. And the radula is covered in little teeth, basically. <laughs> so it's like, it's a little so cool and so spooky. They basically Sorry. like rasp, like lick their food into little bits because like the chewing happens with the tongue teeth. And then when they swallow, their food is going through their brain because their brains are donut shaped. So their esophagus is going through the donut hole. And so it's really, really important that they don't swallow a chunk of food that's too big because I imagine it's like brain freeze, but worse. Um, Yeah, it's like an aneurysm. Yeah, like really bad news. And so, I mean, they're you know, you can squish a lot of things in an octopus, for example. Um, Squid are generally not as squishy because they have more rigid body uh, structures. But um, yeah, like they're, I just be glad that we don't get eaten by squid because a lot of animals that get attacked by squid um, get basically eaten alive oh. until they die. Um, seems terrible. Wouldn't recommend it at all. Um, well, so but some some yeah. <laughs> some prey items. Uh, the the squid will have like a paralysis uh, toxin, like in their salivary glands, mm. that um does them in pretty quick. Oh my god! So there's, I've read of incidences of them hunting in packs. Yeah. Like so that would be yeah. the probably the Humboldt squid. Yeah. Humboldt squid are like very large. They're like almost the size of a human. Um not as thick but as as tall. Um so their main mantle, so that's like their their body from mm-hmm. their like tip of their fin to right behind their eyes, um, can be like about the length of your torso. And then, um, but again, skinnier. And then the, the the tentacles can go longer than that. And so they do hang out in big groups. And we think that they communicate with each other by flashing white and red. And when you, like, look at a group of Humboldt squid flashing like that, it is, like, alien invasion style. Like, it is the spookiest thing I've ever seen. And I'm very glad that I've never been swimming with Humboldt squid because while there are no recorded deaths of humans by Humboldt squid. I'm still just like not trying to deal with that. Like, no, they're pretty aggressive on the whole. And so, um, yeah, they swim in packs. They, uh, will eat each other. Uh, they'll eat uh, pretty much whatever. Uh, you know, what's really interesting actually is, so you kind of, so our show, we deal with kind of, you know, teaching and talking about science by, um, or trying to try to teach people to think critically and rationally and scientifically by discussing like fun topics and like non-science stuff sometimes. And, you know, I mean, frankly, pseudoscience, right? Things like aliens and Bigfoot and whatever. Um, 
And one of the things that we often talk about when we, we, you know, hear these kind of wacky stories about aliens or whatever is this idea that, you know, just because humans look like, you know, we got two arms and two legs and we got a brain in our heads and eyes and everything else doesn't mean that something else would be like that. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And the squid is sort of the perfect example of that. Cause like you said, you know, they're, they, they, it's not hard to think that you could develop a complex, you know, a com- relatively complicated language using just visual cues like that. Right. Communicating through signs and symbols as opposed to communicating through um, sound waves. The, it's just such an interesting thing. I mean, do we know, like, how much do we know, I guess I'd say, today? So what, I guess I'll end this segment with this kind of question. What do you think the big, in like 10 years, right, if you had to predict or, hate, you know, hedge guess as to what you think the next big discoveries will be, or rather, if that's too impossible, because I know it can be an impossible question, what do you think the next big areas of research are in sort of, I guess, squid biology? Like, what do you think the big pressing questions are? What are the concerns right now in the field? So this might not be um, the kind of uh, pie-in-the-sky answer you might hope for, but uh, climate change research is huge. Sure. I think mm-hmm. it's something that we we need to have a better grasp on. And uh, based on the data that we have so far on how our oceans are changing – um, we've fished out all, not all, but a lot of the fish. And so that's leaving a huge opening in the ecosystem for cephalopods to do quite well because uh, they're predators. We ate their predators, basically. And mm-hmm. so um, they also reproduce quite quickly compared to uh, other things in their like trophic level, like things that are eating the same stuff they are. Um, and so... I think we'll be looking to see like where squid are moving to, whether they're doing as well um, as they currently are reproduction wise, whether, for example, um, like the increase uh, in acidity in the ocean or the decrease in the pH of the ocean is going uh, to affect their their eggs or anything about their bodies internally, um, how the the heat of the ocean may affect the ability for them to do well um, and whether we should be eating more squid as um, as a food source for, for protein for all the humans that we're going to have to feed. Um, I think that's going to be super, super important. Interesting. Okay. So really it's these, I mean, I kind of figured that would be a big challenge, right? I mean, obviously you can imagine. Um, do you, so for listeners that don't, don't understand, I guess, or don't really realize this. So CO2 carbon dioxide is acidic. Um, and so when it, especially when it dissolves in water, right, it, it dissolves in water yeah. and becomes basically a source of, it, it becomes an acidic source essentially. So that's why an increase in climate change increases the acidity of water. That's one way that that can actually happen. Um, yeah. Do we know or do we have any idea that squid are affected? Like, do we have any sense that they are negatively affected by this? Or is it more of a, like you're saying, um, because of the kind of damage we're, we've done to the ecology around the squid that they're actually just doing better. And maybe we're in this weird situation where, you know, similar listeners to when we talked about Rachel Carson, we did predator prey relations, um, something similar here. We've kind of heard the things that have, that are hunting the squid. So now the squid population is getting, is getting high and they're now potentially over, um, yeah. over abundantly eating things. Clearly they're survivors. Right. Yeah. yeah. They're yeah. like, I mean- fine, bring it. Right. So like 
There has been some evidence that their eggs may not do quite as well, but overall their eggs did pretty much okay in a uh, higher temperature, higher uh, or low, lower pH. Mm. Um, but it's really tough to say, like we may be in this like squid sweet spot of like killing all their competition, but not increasing the temperature and uh, increasing the acidity to the extent like to, to be past the point of no return for them. Right. Um, some cephalopods we can say like for sure are going to have a harder time with a more acidic ocean. And that would be the cuttlefish and any other cephalopod that has an internalized shell. So there's like a, a, a squid called the ram's horn squid. And they have this like uh, internal um, spiral shaped uh, shell. And so generally speaking, um, if your ocean is acidic, you have a harder time making things, uh, making shells. And so the cuddle bone that keeps the uh, buoyancy of the cuttlefish and also gives it its uh, characteristic rugby ball shape um, is going to be harder to make. And so what the implications of that are going to be for the, the cuttlefish population uh, can't be great. Uh, we don't know yet. Um, but the squid that don't, or and the octopuses that don't have... Um, a super hard shell, maybe we'll be fine. Uh, TBD. Wild. All right. Well, yeah. with that, we're going to take our first break and uh, we'll be back in one moment. Coming up on five minute news. I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. And we're back. Yes, we are back with Dr. Sarah McAnulty uh, from uh, the University of Connecticut uh, Molecular and Cellular Biology Department, as well as from Skype as Scientist. So um, Sarah, I guess, actually is kind of a wrap-up question from the previous discussion here where we're talking about your, your work with squids and everything else. Um, what are ways that people can... Like are squids are squids in danger? Are they endangered? Are there conservation efforts that need to be done? Is there a way for listeners to help with that? And is there a way, frankly, for listeners to just learn more about squid biology on their own? Yeah. So squid on the whole doing pretty good. We hope sure. they keep doing good. Um, so what you want to do to help squid is really anything you can do to help the ocean. Like everything from doing a beach cleanup locally to trying to reduce your plastic consumption. And anything that you can do that will uh, decrease your uh, carbon footprint, which I realize is very challenging to do, um, is worth doing. Voting for uh, people who are going to push forward climate action, very, very important. Um, so those are the real things that that you can do. Overall, there aren't squid. The, if, like, if there are endangered squid, we don't really know they're endangered because they live deep, we think. Because mm. the squid that we have that are shallow are doing overall pretty great. 
Um, and it's entirely possible that we're doing a total number on deep sea squid, but we don't know about it because we don't have enough data about them. Um, there are a couple things I would recommend if you want to learn more about cephalopods or squid. There's a book called Squid Empire by Donna St uh, Stoff, and she is like amazing. She wrote a book all about cephalopod evolution. Um, and like, generally speaking, I didn't think I would be interested in uh, extinct cephalopods, but she's such a good writer and she tells such a good story that that's a great book. There's also um, a slightly more academic book called Cephalopod Behavior by Roger Hamlin um, and John Messenger. And uh, that will go into all the nitty gritty things about uh, cephalopods and why they do what they do. And uh, it's a really thorough book. Um, and if you're going to look at that, get the second edition, um, because it has a lot more information. It was updated like two years ago. Um, and the new edition is phenomenal. Um, and, uh, there's also a book called Kraken, uh, by Wendy Williams, um, that you can read too. That's all about squid biologists. Awesome. Really cool. cool. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So we are going to now transition to kind of what you're working on now which is Skype a Scientist. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure, yeah. So Skype a Scientist is a platform that helps connect scientists to non-scientists in a lot of different ways. So our flagship program matches scientists with classrooms, library groups, scout troops, basically anybody who wants to talk to a scientist online using video chat. And so we serve about 10,000 classrooms a year, um, classrooms and other groups, but it's mostly classrooms. Um, and basically, the group leader, whoever they are that want to talk to a scientist, will tell us the type of scientist they want to talk to. There are about 30 categories that people can choose from. Um, they can also get super specific. Let's say they want to talk to somebody who knows about colony collapse disorder in bees. They want a bee expert. They can go on our website and use our scientist search tool, type in the word bee, and then everybody who studies bees will pop up. And then you can request that scientist by name. Um, we also, we match by like boring things like time zone and time availability and that kind of thing. Um, and also, if your group is over half of a given underrepresented group in STEM, you can tell us that. And then we'll try to match you with a scientist from the same group. Um, you can also request a female scientist and you can also request um, an LGBTQ scientist or um, a scientist that grew up in a low-income upbringing, um, because that's really important to a lot of kids that uh, want to see someone like them um, having uh, made it to science. Um, we also do events at like bars and community centers and festivals um, that are pretty play-based, mostly for adults. They're just like science games uh, that you might want to play with a beer in your hand, um, or no beer if beer's not your thing. Um, and we do some other online things for adults as well. And we're building training for our scientists to, uh, get better at science communication because scientists on the whole are pretty busy people. And so we want to make them feel empowered to do science communication all the time and feel confident in their skills and overall just, uh, do it more than we've been doing it in the past and do it effectively. It's such a cool, it's such a, first off, it's such a good idea. You know, I mean, even like in my own life, 
I was thinking back to this the other day before, you know, we, we were kind of planning to have you on and everything. I don't, I don't think I could name, like I got lucky because of where I grew up. I grew up in New York city. And so I was really fortunate to go to a high school where my chemistry teacher and my biology teacher were both scientists before they came to teach at this high school. Um, and it's just kind of, is like luck of the draw. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, uh, you know, other teachers I had or other friends I had that went to other schools had, you know, chemistry teachers who were English majors or, you know, people that just like got into teaching to teach, right. They weren't doing kind of research. Um, and you know, if it wasn't for those kind of interactions, I don't think I would have met a scientist until maybe, I mean, maybe ever really, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's wild to think how differently my life would have gone had I never had those interactions. Um, I complete and so you know it's it's one of those funny things where you know the scientific community is kind of scratching their heads right now and wondering you know well why is it that the public doesn't really trust science and maybe academics and whatever and you know I think the first the kind of first question you got to ask is well have you ever talked to a member of the public about what you do yeah exactly <laughs> and like how many people who aren't scientists have actually Met, met a scientist. Yeah, like how many people can honestly yeah, say right. that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, I had never really met a scientist. Like, we didn't know any. And so my parents, they knew I liked squid. So they were like, I don't know, like, maybe you'll work in an aquarium. Maybe you'll be a dolphin <laughs> trainer. And I was like, okay. Dolphin trainer, like, like, dolphins? Sure Those not. punks? No. I know. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not it. But, like, I have no idea what being a squid's person is like what what's a squid job like I'm sure I'll figure it out but um I had no idea and so I didn't really learn what science looked like until I got to college um and I'm lucky I got a view into that as early as I did once I got to college like that doesn't happen for everybody and so uh yeah we we just got to talk to people that's step one yeah it's a it's a super cool program it's funny actually I um yeah it's fascinating yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna sign up right after this. I'm really excited. Great, it's gonna be Shred. great. Um, so the thing, one of the things I guess, or one of the one of the topics of it that I think is really important too is the ability for people to reach out to scientists and reach out through this program. You know, we have a lot of listeners who are teachers or who are um, just people who have kids that are interested in this stuff. That you know. Um, they're interested in it. Their kids have grown interested in it. And so they want to get them excited about these topics and things. And what we find a lot of the time, honestly, is, and this is something I was thinking about a lot the other day, you know, kind of why is it that people transition from say, believe like, like thinking or enjoying like physics or chemistry or biology or these other sciences to then getting involved or interested in more kind of like fringy science, pseudoscience stuff. Right. And right, honestly, yeah. part Part of the reasons why I think it happens, um, besides the fact that, frankly, that stuff is that stuff can be exciting and interesting and fun and all that other stuff. Right. I mean, I I watch those documentaries, too, sometimes, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think really the differences are the thing that we hear really commonly from people is, you know, you go to these conventions or something and you say, well, why are you into this stuff? And they'll tell me, you know, well, I really liked science as a kid, but I wasn't smart enough to be a scientist. Yeah. That is, that's such a disheartening answer for me to hear, oh, you know? So, yeah. 
Um, I mean, I squeaked by on chemistry and math. Yes, and same. Then, like pure perseverance and force of will. I was like, you know what? I don't care that I got a C in calculus and chemistry. Like, I'm gonna be a squid scientist. Like, who's gonna stop me? You know? I got I got a C in organic chemistry and then did my PhD on organometallic chemistry. <laughs> you know what I mean? It has it has no relation, yeah. no relation at all. Like like at a certain level, it becomes more about like you said, drive and just interest, right? Like love of the subject is almost what's more important than kind of your uh, your grades and things. And I really do think that if we could tell more kids that and get more kids to believe that they could do this, that hopefully it will, um, I don't know, in some small way, turn the tide a little bit here, you know? And decrease the intimidation around science because a lot yes, of people exactly. think that exactly. scientists are ultra geniuses. And while there are smart people in science, I'm not a genius. I just like really like squid. And, <laughs> you know, I, well, I th- that's the perfect way of saying it though. Yeah. It's like, I think that you have, a passion about something and you've translated it. You could have translated it, you know, your love of squid into a number of different things. Like you could have worked in an aquarium, but it's, oh, I think it's like yeah. having kids be able to experience that. Like, Hey, do you love bugs? Like my daughter loves, she loves slugs. She Great. loves them. And it's sort of like, you know, again, to hear kind of like somebody talk about, you know, that, that what you could do with that and like kind of nurture that I think is like a good place to kind of get the, you know, the germination for, for what you could do in sciences. Yeah. Cause it seems, it does seem kind of like a distance, like you were saying between like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I, I know I'm going to do something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I think that's such a good bridge. Yeah. So what do you think the next steps are here for, because you know, you're also very involved obviously with through Skype as scientists, but also through Twitter and through, sort of coming on shows like this and everything, you're, you're really involved in science communication. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, it's funny, actually, you mentioned, you know, Woods Hole and then um, being from, uh, or kind of, you know, being in Pennsylvania and stuff in Philly. Um, we did a whole series on Rachel Carson um, not that long ago. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was the fact that she became interested or involved in the sciences as a kid not because of school or not because of these other things, but because there were ways for her to engage with science at home that her and her mother could do. Right. And so you had those, you know, during the thirties and forties and fifties, um, you had sort of a, you know, ornithology clubs all over the place and you had ecology, you know, before it was ecology, but you know, you had ecology basically happening in people's backyards and on their nature hikes um, and doing that kind of stuff. In biology, sort of, I guess, in in kind of animal biology, do opportunities like that exist for people? Like, if if a kid wanted to get involved in, um, I don't know, working with an aquarium or just studying this stuff at home or learning more about it and everything else, what would you say are some opportunities for them? Or are are there people you think, um, listeners, if they have a kid who loves this stuff, who's really interested? Do you think there are people can, that you can recommend who you would say, well, they should check this out or they should listen to these people or, you know, um, I don't know, YouTube channels, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think knowledge and access to information is more democratized now than it's ever been in human history. And so 
you can learn so much from just going on the internet and looking stuff up. Um, mm-hmm. There are a lot of YouTube channels that are specialized in the various things that you're into. Um, so like everything from neuroscience to, to bugs to big cats to everything. So um, like, for example, I'm going to Costa Rica, unless the coronavirus thwarts my plans in at the end of April, I want to see some bugs while I'm there. And I don't know the first thing about bugs, really. Like, I know the same amount of bugs that any given scientist does, but not much more than that. And so mm-hmm. I've been like going on YouTube and just like looking up bug videos and watching bug scientists or insect scientists, entomologists, um, that have made their own videos and learning from them because there are so many science communicators out there just doing their thing, um, often to pretty small audiences. So you can uh, find those folks on uh, the internet. And then Twitter is another great place to get a sense for who scientists are and what they do and what they're into. And then also just like go to a, go to a nature reserve, go to a park near you. Um, I spent a lot of my uh, childhood in like, like a glorified drainage ditch, honestly, but like <laughs> it felt like nature. Great. I, I grew up in Philadelphia and my dad would take me down to this like sad little Creek. And uh, I know it's a sad little Creek now, but I thought it was like the height of nature. I like couldn't believe all the amazing animals that I was seeing That's awesome. down at the Creek, like the minnows and the bugs and whatever. Um, and so just like get out there, like flip some logs, see what you have around you. Um, if you're interested in animals, particularly local to you, check out iNaturalist. There's a lot you can learn about your local wildlife just from observations that other people in your area have had. Um, yeah, there's like it, there's an inexhaustible number of things. If you're in college, there's tons of things you can do internship wise um, and make sure that you find the ones that will actually pay you. Um, REUs are really, really good. They're um, funded, I believe, by the government. Um, I'm sorry. My cat is like screaming. Can you hear him? <laughs> it's all good. Your cat is like, feed me squid. We're talking about seafood in there. He's just dramatic. Um, it's all good. <laughs> he needs attention 100% of the time. And I have not okay. talked to him in 51 minutes and 54 seconds. And he's really up mm-hmm. about that. Anyway, I understand. Yeah. Uh, is he done? I think he's done. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's a bunch of ways that you can like just, Find your thing and find your people online and uh, just learn stuff as you go in your local environment. Awesome. And the museums, of, of course, are great. You know, I got to tell you, I was I was on the I was on the plane home yesterday. So in my day job, I travel a lot. I was on the way home and I was feeling really um, I'm not going to lie. I was feeling pretty down about kind of the state of science communication in terms of just you know, uh, kind of the, some of the stuff that we do and talking to you here today has given me a new lease on this stuff. I'm, I'm so, it's so energizing to talk to you and hear you talk about this stuff. And it's so cool. There's so many opportunities for kids and everyone to get into this stuff. Listeners, please, please follow, um, at Skype scientist, um, follow Dr. Uh, McCandlety here. Um, what's your Twitter handle here? It's at Sarah Mac Sarah McAttack. I'm Sarah McAttack on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Um, You can find Skype a Scientist at Skype a Scientist uh, on Instagram and Skype Scientist on Twitter because Skype a Scientist was taken on Twitter. Um, And our website is skypeascientist.com. We are always in need of donations. 
small to large, any size is great because we are basically a startup nonprofit um, and want to make sure that everyone's getting paid for their work. Um, and we're uh, like the starving artist uh, equivalent of science communicators at the moment. So uh, <laughs> patreon.com slash Skype a scientist. And you can give us a one-time donation at paypal.com slash Skype a scientist. And we're a 501c3 nonprofit. So any donations that you give us are tax deductible. Very cool. Well, so cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Marie, any last yes, uh, questions you. or things? No, no. Oh, oh here. Okay. So one more prediction. Okay. Do you think we'll get more footage of giant squid in the next year? Oh, for sure. So, for sure. I mean, we're, we're getting, putting more ROV so down there than before. We've got better cameras that go underwater better. Like just give right. it time. We're going to see more giant squid. And they're becoming more, inst- they're more influencers now, right? If there's any ocean animal that's an influencer, other than maybe whales, giant squid. Come on. It's, oh, love it. Gotta be. Gotta be. Well, great stuff. Thanks so much for coming on. And we will, uh, listeners, we'll be back again soon with another episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookyScienceSisters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you and stay spooky.